Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Seems like we have not gotten out of Genesis this entire series. So the last, uh, well, I don't know how many weeks, but since uh, we returned from our sabbatical in, uh, at the beginning of September, we have been going through a series on pursuing God's shalom. And we've been looking at three different areas, which were the three emphasis areas of our sabbatical. So we started out looking at God's shalom in relationships. We moved to creation. And then today we kick off the third sub-series within the series of looking at God's shalom in creation. So really excited about, uh, about that. Um, now I'm just going to be completely honest with you for a moment before we pray and get into the scriptures. One of the things that... Uh, that, that as, a, as a preacher that I try to do is to actually, you know, to hear from God and to hear from the Holy Spirit about what God wants to say to us as a congregation. But there's often a fine line between what I find really, really interesting and what God wants to say. And so this morning is one of these really, really fine lines, and I'm, I might be straddling this one because this is something I find really, really interesting, uh, and, and you may all be bored out of your minds. So uh, we're going to pray that this is, in fact, something uh, is a word from God and that uh, God piqued my interest because God wanted to speak to us. So we're going to pray for that, but I'm just going to be completely upfront uh, with, with where I am, which also means I'm really excited about this morning's message. Uh, let's just say that, too. Like, I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of geeked about it because I'm a geek. So let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. That is where we'll end there this morning. So we've looked at this Genesis passage uh, quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. We've either been in Genesis chapter 1 or we've been in Genesis chapter 2. But one of the things that I want to draw out right now, just to kind of remind us of where we are and why we're doing this series, is I want to look at two words. Two words uh, that are in the Hebrew, and you can translate them either abad, you can translate one abad and the other shema. These are the words that get translated into English as to work in the garden and to care for it. So abad, that first Hebrew word, can be translated as work or to nurture, to sustain something, or even to husband. If you think about the, the farming or the, you know, you got land animals, your husbandry, right? So that's that word abad. Shamar is the word, uh, Hebrew word gets translated, it can be safe, to safeguard something, to preserve it, to protect it, or, uh, or to care for it. So these two Hebrew words, abad and shamar, really begin to, to frame the idea around what God intends in regards for human relationships to the rest of creation. And so as we human beings seek to flourish in the world, we have to do so 
with these words guiding what we do and what we don't do. So as we farm in the world, right? As we farm, we also begin to ask the question, are we shamaring? Are we protecting the creation? As we build things and expand uh, cities, we need to also ask the question, are we preserving? When we utilize technology in different forms, we ask the question, are we sustaining creation, right? And we try to balance human flourishing with the call to shamar the creation. We want to abide in creation, but we also want to shamar in creation. And this creates this tension. You probably felt that tension even as I listed off those couple examples. Are we farming and are we, are we protecting? Are we building and are we preserving? Are we using technology and are we sustaining? There's a tension that's inherent in the those two uh, forces or these two impulses. And that tension, I believe, and when we live into that tension, when we stretch the rubber band between these two things and try to hold them together, that's where I think we find shalom. Shalom is harmony, right? And I was thinking about it this week. Harmony also conjures up this musical image, right? When you harmonize with something. And the, the only way you can make music is with some kind of tension. There's got to be tension on the string to pluck it and get a sound. There's tension in our vocal cords to make, to sing, right? Like we need that tension to make harmony. And I think that's a little bit of how we get at shalom. We need to hold things in tension. We need to hold in tension the impulse or the, the, the call to, to work in the garden, to work in creation, and to care for it, to protect it, to sustain it. And when we hold tension, ah, that's, that's when the music begins to be made. That's when it's a little bit like, yeah, that's the way that it's supposed to be. And it's our tension, right? It's our tension in living out these two calls, to Abad and to Shamar, that drives our engagement in the world. Theologian James Davison Hunter describes our engagement in the world like this. It says, The passion to engage the world, to shape it, and finally change it for the better would seem to be an enduring mark of Christians on the world in which they live. To be Christian is to be obliged to engage the world, pursuing God's restorative purposes over all of life, individual and corporate, public and private. So why are Christians committed to the work of seeing God's justice, God's hope, God's purposes become realities in the world? Because we believe in this mandate to Abad and Shamar. And so in the first sub-series of this sermon series, Pursuing God's Shalom, we talked about God's shalom in relationships, primarily individual relationships between us and God or individual relationships between us and others, right? In the second part of the, or the series, we talked about our relationship with the rest of creation. And then in this sub-series, we're going to look at God's shalom in the corporate and this public sphere that Davison was talking about. We're going to talk about our relationship to society or to large groups of people. Or another way to say it is our relationship to culture. And so as we get into this, the question that I'm asking or have been asking for the last couple of months is, what does God's shalom, what is God's harmony, what what does God intend for culture? 
But before we can get too far down that answer, I think we've got to back up and ask even one more question. We have to ask the question, what is culture? Culture is this wide term, right? We all come to it with different perspectives and different understandings, and even sociologists differ on exactly what culture is. So we, I think we've got to come to some sort of shared understanding, some shared meaning, so that at least we're talking about the same thing or we're close to talking about the same thing when we talk about culture. So culture is, the word itself is derived from, it's derived from a French word that is derived from a Latin word, and it's the Latin word colier. I think I'm saying that right. What's that? Cor- that one. Uh, you talk to Mike afterwards if you like the phonetic pronunciation. We're going to go with colier right now, which, uh, which means, this is, this is really interesting, it means to tend the earth and to grow or to like, cultivate and nurture something. So, so you can hear in that definition the, the, the calling back to Genesis 2. It's sort of this reduplication. It's this the similar meaning of Abad and Shamar. So what happens is, is as human beings, we begin to work in the world. We work alongside other people, right? We don't work just by ourselves as we farm. We don't work by ourselves as we build buildings, but we work alongside other people. And as we work alongside these other people in the world, we begin to interact in particular ways. We begin to share values. We begin to share common beliefs about the natural world, about the spiritual realm. We begin to develop habits and social habits and morals and methods of communication that are deemed acceptable and unacceptable. And these things develop into the intangible characteristics of a society, right? They begin to define our social life. Our social life is centered around these intangible qualities, these values, these beliefs, these practices that go unspoken, right? These ideals that we have for how we should interact with one another. These are all intangible. They exist up in the ether. You can't grab them and show them to somebody. You can just describe them, right? And from these intangible qualities or these intangible characteristics, we then get all these tangible things. We get music and art and food and architecture. But these tangible qualities of culture are derived from the intangible, right? They filter down. So, as an example, when you go to a foreign country, the things that stand out to you, the different architecture, the different food, the different music, the different languages, all of these things are noticeable. These are the tangible characteristics of a culture. But they're derived from the intangible things, the things you can't see. You've got to read between the lines. You have to be there for a while. You have to study the people, interact with the people, talk about why they do things and all that to get at it. So when we were in Italy this past summer, we, every, every city we went to, whether it was a big city or whether it was a little city, like a village, we would go there and they would have churches, right? Italy was a hotbed during uh, medieval times for medieval Christianity. And so there's churches over there. But they're not just churches. They're cathedrals. You go into these small little cities and they'd have these massive buildings with huge open air structures and they'd have art on the walls and up on the ceilings. And, and there was just this austerity around the buildings. 
And it was noticeable. It was, you could reach out and touch the, the buildings and you could, you could walk into the spaces and feel the grandeur of it. And you, would, you couldn't help but say, well, this is very different than what we have in America. Because while we have some cathedrals here in America, typically dominated by Protestant Christianity, we've got the small little white church. Or we've got lots of churches that have have sanctuaries that are similar to, to the chapel across the way, right? And so when we think of churches, we think of that. But even as we've progressed into the modern era, and, and I mean, look around where we are, we are worshiping in a rectangular room with basketball hoops up there and lights, right? And this is, this is very common here because a lot of our churches in America are sort of these multi-purpose, multi-functional buildings where you can use rooms for many, many different things. And so if you were just to look at these and say, okay, like, what are the values out of which these, these buildings, this architecture is coming? Well, what you'd say, and we're just focusing on America here, is that we, we value pragmatism. We value practicality. We value multifunctioning, you know, the multifunctional use of something. And that affects what we build. Yeah. We might say something completely different about what we think countries like Italy value. Not to say anything about whether or not those churches are being used. We're not going there. But when they were built. Yeah. So these tangible aspects of culture ultimately are derived from the intangible aspects of a culture. Now, another tangible aspect of culture, which we don't often think of, but it really is a tangible, qualitative uh, characteristic of a culture, is its laws. Laws take the intangible values, the ideals of a society, and then codify them into rules for how we are to engage with one another. Right? So we take the, the intangible Say, we want to achieve these values. And so we're going we're gonna to dictate how we do life together through these codified set of rules we will then call laws. So let's just think about American culture again. If we were to say, or, or if, if, we, if I were to ask, what are three values or ideals that shape the American imagination and culture, what might you say? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? These values, these ideals, shape American culture. And one of the ways they which they shape American culture is through the laws that we then create. Our laws are meant to uphold, to protect, and to ensure that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is something that every American can achieve. So, the freedom of speech, the emancipation of slaves, the 15th Amendment that ensures that all people, regardless of race, are able to vote, laws surrounding the protection of private property, laws around religious freedom. All of these laws, you could argue, are coming from these intangible beliefs values and ideals that we as a society collectively hold. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
And then what begins to happen over time is we begin to expand our understanding of what that means, right? Particularly what we've seen in the last couple hundred years with America is we begin to expand who we believe those ideals extend to. So at one point, it was largely if you are a white man who owns land. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is yours. But then we began to expand that. No, no, no. Regardless of your race, even if you're a black man, it should extend to you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But no, no, no. It's not just a black man, but then also women, right? We've had to go through these transitions as we expanded who could vote, who could own property, all of these types of things. But it's all connected to the ideal. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all. So laws are derived from principles, from ideals, from values and beliefs. Now, not only are laws derived from these values, principles, ideals, and beliefs, but these laws also reinforce those values, beliefs, ideals, and principles. So the idea is if you abide by these laws, you then are being instructed or you are being directed towards living into life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? So, so here's, now this is, you are like, wow, this is a really philosophical civics lesson that I was not prepared for on a Sunday morning. Here's why I think this matters. I want to propose that this is exactly what God was doing when God gave the law to Israel. The second part, that God gave the law to Israel in effort to shape Israel's imagination and minds towards the higher values, principles, and ideals that God has for them. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay. So I want to I build off of this idea. I want to I show you what this looks like, but we're gonna, this is going to stay with me. We're going we're gonna to hang out in the head, and then I think we'll bring it home at the end. And I think this is also going to be a little bit difficult because it's going to challenge some assumptions that we have about laws. So let's go. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very first day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God. 
So this scene takes place after the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt. God, they cried out to God. God rescued them, brought them through the, Mount, through the Red Sea. They now are at the base of Mount Sinai. And God is preparing to make this people into a nation of holy priests, just as he promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. So they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain, hears from God, comes back down the mountain and says, hey, God's going to tell us some stuff. And the people respond, we will do everything that the Lord has said. So Moses goes back up the mountain. And then after, while he's up on the mountain, or he goes back up the mountain, they cut, there's a back and forth a little bit there. The people consecrate themselves, getting ready to hear what God has to say. And then in Exodus chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments. We begin to get the law, right? And and here's what I want us to, to, to look at, because this seems all straightforward. But look back at verse 5. If you've got your Bibles open, look back at verse 5 here. Now, this is God speaking. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. As Western English-reading people, I think this is what we hear when we read that sentence. I, God, am going to give you, Israel, a whole bunch of commands. 613 to be, to be truthful. And in order to keep the covenant between you and me, you must adhere to every single one of those commands. You must obey them. And if you don't obey them, if you, if you break even one of those commands, then our covenant is broken. Right? That, that's what we hear when we read that. And as a result of hearing that from that reading, we get, I think, the most understood version of the gospel. The most understood version of the gospel goes something like this. God gave these commands to us as human beings, we can't keep all 613 commands. We break them on a daily basis. And because we break those commands with God, our relationship with God is severed. And we can do nothing on our own to restore it. But God, out of his great love for us, sent Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus was a perfect human being because he kept all 613 commands. And because Jesus kept all 613 commands, he lived a sin, sinless life, then died in our stead, and now we are restored back to good covenantal standing with God because Jesus kept all the laws. Now, that version of the gospel has truth in it. It's not completely wrong but I think it's missing something. I think it's missing something important about the spirit and, and about the scope of what Jesus came to do because I would posit that Jesus did much more than simply keep 613 commands. If you look again at verse 5, God says to Moses, if you obey and keep my commands... Here's what we miss as English-speaking people. There is no word for obey in Hebrew. Go through the whole Hebrew language. 
There is no word for obey. It doesn't exist. So the word that's translated here as obey is the word shema. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, or maybe you've been in other churches, you probably have some, some ding, 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 ding going off in your head. Like, I know that word. Right? Shema. There's a section of scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first few verses of Deuteronomy 6. We're not going to go there, but if you want to, you can go there later. That section of scripture is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And it goes on to say how you should keep that command. But it's called the Shema because of the first word. Shema. Shema Israel, Aranai, Elohenu, Aranai, Achad. Shema. Hear. Hear, O Israel. Shema Israel. Listen. This is the meaning of the word. So when Moses comes down the mountain and reports to them what God says, God says to the Israelites through Moses, if you listen to me and my commands. We, we might translate it, if you hear and heed. If you hear me and you heed me. Now, th this is important for us. Um, because we often separate listening and obeying out. Right? Like, I can listen to you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to obey what you say. So, this week... <laughs> Children, as they often do, provided with me a perfect example of this. On uh, one day this week, I was, I was with Evelyn and Wesley. We came to the church, and I had them running around, and they were playing, and I was getting some stuff done. And when we were all done, I herded them as one does with parenting. I was running back and forth down the hallways and trying to keep one in one room while I chased down another one. And then when I came back, the other one was missing somewhere. And you know how that goes. And then I finally get him out in the parking lot. Nobody was here. The parking lot was empty. We walk up to the car and we walk up to the, to the van and we're on the side that Evelyn gets in on. So I open up the door. I get Evelyn into the car seat. I finagle her, get her buckled in, get her the toys that she wants, get out her cup, get out her, her thing of goldfish, right? She's all situated. I turn around and Wesley is halfway across the parking lot. And I'm like, Wesley, come here. And he turns and looks at me. I'm like, come here, Wesley. And he just walks the other direction. I'm like, Wesley David, you come here. And he looks at me. Eaves, Eaves. He was pointing at the leaves on the other side of the parking lot. And he takes off running. And by the time I catch up to the little stinker, he's made it all the way across to the parking lot. Now, did he hear me? Oh, yeah, he heard me. He stopped, turned around, smiled real cute, and then ran. <laughs> did he heed me? Not in the least. You see, we've separated these out, but for the Hebrew, you don't separate them out. If you hear, you heed. If you listened and could recite back what I said, but you didn't do what I said, then you didn't truly hear me. Not really. You, you didn't shema. So God says to Moses, I want you and the Israelites to shema. Hear me. 
And then over a period of time, God gives Israel 613 commands or statues. And those commands are found largely in, in the uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But we call the whole section of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we called it the Torah. And Torah is most often the word that gets translated law or the law. But that introduces, this idea of law introduces a whole host of problems for us. Because when we think of laws as modern Western people, we think about laws from a very particular perspective, and one that is relatively modern. It's only a few hundred years old. Our laws and the way we think about laws are thought of as statutory laws, which means that these laws are written down, right? They're written down in a final form, and they are meant to be followed according to the letter of the law. So when you break a law, you can find a reference in the penal code to the exact law that you broke with the punishment that goes along with, that, with breaking that law. If you buy a house, there's a very particular process that is involved in transferring the ownership of that property from one individual to another, and how you do that is written down in a code of laws, right? And those laws, in their written form, must be followed to the letter of the law. We're not in, like, we don't care about the spirit of the law. I mean, we kind of do, but really it's about the letter of the law, right? And so for us, we're constantly referencing what does the law say? What does the law describe in how to handle this situation? So I'm going to give you an example, and I'm just telling you up front, I'm not making a political statement here at all, but I'm just telling you this is how it works in our society because we are focused on the written word. Over the course of the next couple of months, it's already been going on, but over the course of the next couple of months, we as a society are going to have an in-depth conversation about two words in our law code, crimes and misdemeanors. And we're going to talk about what do those mean? What are they supposed to mean? How do they apply? What, is, what, is the, what, is, what did they mean way back then? What do they mean now? All of that sort of stuff. That's the conversation we're going to have. But we can't get away from those words because they're in the law book. They're codified. We have to attend to them. We can't make the law say whatever we want it to say, but we have to wrestle with the text itself. Everything for us as a society comes back to that because we are a statutory law society. What happens then is as we read the Old Testament and particularly the Torah, we take this understanding of law and our, our focus on the letter of the law and we apply that kind of reading to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we treat it as if it's statutory law but it's not. The text is not an exhaustive law code written and meant to be referenced in judicial cases. And part of the reason we know that is there's actually judicial cases that we have records of that don't go back and point and say, well, because of this law, this is, how, this is what we do and this is the punishment. So the Old Testament laws are not statutory laws. They're common law. And common law functions very, very differently. Let me give you an example. 
one of the more famous laws, commands, statutes in the Old Testament is this. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. This is a very straightforward law. And if we're applying statutory law mentality to this, we would simply say, you punch me in the nose, good. I get to punch you in the nose. You stab me in the side, <laughs> put your arm up, here's a sword, poof, right? Like this is how we would understand it in statutory law. I'm sorry, I would like not to punch you in the nose, but that's what the law says, right? This is how it is applied. Now, the problem for a lot of people when we read the Old Testament, we say, if that's what God commands, if God is that kind of vengeful, punitive God who's focused on physical punishment, I want nothing to do with that God. People say that, right? They look at the Old Testament laws and say, that's, that's problematic for me. I can't go there. And part of what I think is happening is they're applying this idea of statutory law to a law that isn't meant to be taken word for word. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you were a Hebrew, you would also know that there's a commentary that goes alongside of it called the Talmud. And the Talmud is filled with rabbis discussing the various commands of God and how they are to be applied and what exactly they mean. And what's interesting is if you were to go read the Talmud on this particular law, what you would find is that even the rabbis themselves did not believe that this was statutory, that you follow the letter of the law, that if someone in fact fractured your arm, you should go and fracture theirs. One of the more famous rabbis, Rabbi Maimonides, I think I got that right, Maimonides, we'll just go with him, and this is literally his nickname, Rambam. We'll go with what Rambam says. Rambam said this about that. He said, The Torah's statement, as a man shall inflict upon him, does not mean that we should physically injure the perpetrator, but rather that the perpetrator is deserving of losing his limb and must therefore pay financial restitution. Wait, wait, wait. That's not what the text says. The text doesn't say anything about financial restitution. So either you've got rabbis who are willingly, willingly defying what the text says, or they're changing the text in some capacity, or the intent of the text is something different altogether. Those are our options. And what I would make the case for is that the, that the statutes have a different intent altogether. See, Torah does not mean law. Torah means instruction. And so in the Old Testament, when we see the psalmists and the prophets and various others refer to the Torah, we see them referring to it as fire or water, wine, oil, honey, manna, a tree of life. The law itself was considered by some to be freedom, goodness, and life. And it was identified both as, as love and wisdom. In other words, the commands 
lead to something greater. The commands are derived from higher principles and values and ideals about how God wants his people to live as a priestly nation. And so God gives these commands as a way of instructing his people about how to live into those values, beliefs, and ideals. So when Paul writes to Timothy and says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness— Paul is talking about the Torah because that's exactly what the Torah does. It teaches, it corrects, it rebukes, and it trains so that we might live into those high values and ideals. Because here's the thing. God is not interested in making a nation of rule followers. God was calling Israel to be a priestly nation. They weren't called to be a perfect nation. They weren't called to be a nation of people who are really good at obeying all the laws. God is not interested in creating a group of legalists. Rather, God was forming a people, a priestly nation, who Shema, the voice of God. And in Hearing and heeding the voice of God, they are governed by these higher principles. And as they live out those higher principles, they are a priestly nation. And this, then, is what I would argue sets Jesus apart. Jesus was not a perfect human being because he kept all the rules. Jesus, like there was no one up in heaven with a checklist of all 613 laws who were going like, okay, did Jesus break this one? Did he not break that one? How's he doing so far? Uh-oh, we, he's getting close to that. Like no one's doing the checklist thing because if God, like if he accidentally broke one, he would cease to be the son of God. In fact, I would even say like if you read through the, through the gospel narratives, for a lot of people, it looked like Jesus did break some of the laws, now, we could argue that he didn't, but it looks like he, because he healed on the Sabbath, and his, he and his disciples picked grain on the Sabbath, and he touched lepers, and he touched dead people, which would make him unclean, that a good Israelite, those, some, those are some of the laws you're not supposed to do, and yet Jesus did those. So, if, like, perfection, by the, according to the letter of the law, was what was demanded for a perfect life, then, then, there, then some would have a really good case that Jesus didn't do that. But that's not the point at all. The point is not, did Jesus keep all 613 laws? The point was, did Jesus perfectly hear and heed the voice of God? Did Jesus hear the voice of the Father? Yes. Oh, yes, right? Over and over again, we read in the Gospels that Jesus did, does only what? I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. I only do what I hear God tell me to do. That's what made Jesus the perfect human being. Jesus heard the Father's voice like no one else, and he heeded it completely and fully. 
And I think this is ultimately good news for you and I because so often I think where we struggle and where we feel guilt and shame about our walk as Christians is because we aren't good at keeping all the rules. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I don't give enough money. I still look at pornography. I lie over here. I gossip over here, right? We think of ourselves as good or not good. We think of ourselves in right standing or not based upon our ability to obey the letter of the law. And we put all of our energy then into trying to obey the letter of the law. We white knuckle it so that we can say like, I didn't break this one. I didn't break this one. Man, I'm struggling with this one, but I'm going to try to get beyond it. And we just push ourselves to, put, to do that, and that's where all of our energy goes. But listen, and this is going to sound heretical to some people, but I think I'm okay with that. I don't care if you follow all the rules. I don't care if you stop trying to follow all the rules, because your ability to follow the rules will not save you. Jesus will save you, and only Jesus will save you. So maybe just stop trying to do it all together. But I'll tell you what I do care about. Are you putting your energy and effort into hearing the voice of the Father? Are you creating space and margin and quiet so that you can hear what the Father is saying? I do care if you're Shemine. And I hope and I pray that you put all kinds of energy and time and effort into hearing God's voice. And I hope and I pray that you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ that lives in you so that when you hear the voice of the Father, you can heed that voice. Because here's the thing, if you're doing that, following the rules is going to take care of itself. If you're hearing and heeding the voice of God, wisdom will be born in you. And wisdom is life. Proverbs 3.18 says that wisdom is a tree of life. Right? There's this call back to Genesis, to the tree that is the center of the garden that provides life. That's what wisdom is like. Hearing and heeding the voice of God is like the tree of life. All those highest principles, all those values, all those ideals, that's life. That's goodness. And as those beliefs and values and ideals take root in you, the culture of God that is the kingdom of God will be yours. Like, here's the thing. I was thinking about this this morning. What if we didn't call it the kingdom of God? What if it was the culture of God? What if it was the culture of God? Because there's these values, these ideals, these principles, these things, these high-minded beliefs that are so much a part of who we are that they work out in all these tangible ways. The things that we build, the music that we create, the songs that we sing, the food that we eat, the art that we produce, the way in which we treat the people around us, the poor, the oppressed, even the rich and the powerful. The, 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 the value, the, 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 I don't want to say the laws, but just that mode of operation that we have with one another. It's, it's the culture of God. 
And if we're confused about that, what that is, I think we can do what Jesus did. We can just take the words of Jesus because Jesus was asked, like, hey, what's the culture of God? What is that actually like? What does it look like? And Jesus responds, there's two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the other is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. These central beliefs define the culture of God. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Wisdom, then, is learning how to do that. It's examining ourselves and our actions and simply asking, are these things that I'm doing, are these things that I'm producing causing my love of God to increase? Are they causing my love of neighbor to increase? And I think the way we know if we are actually hearing and heeding the voice of God is if we can answer yes to both of those questions. Not just one, but both of those questions. Yes, this thing causes my heart to overflow in gratitude with God and my heart to be filled with compassion for my neighbor. Yes, okay, then you might be hearing and heeding the word of God. And we're going to line that up with scripture and we're going to look at the values and the ideals and we're going to do all of that. Yes, but that was, that's a great rubric just to apply to our life. Does this, this is what Augustine uh, suggested in terms of how we interpret scripture. And I think it's the same thing we can apply to that. Are we hearing the voice of God? Does it cause my love of God to increase and does it cause my love of neighbor to increase? And if yes to those, And the culture of God is taking root around us by hearing and heeding the voice of God through the Spirit of Christ who connects us to the resurrected Jesus. We are marked as a priestly nation, as a culture, as a place where the culture of God is made manifest. as God intended. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that following Jesus and belonging to the family of God is not, does not rest on my ability to follow rules. <laughs> I give you thanks for that. I give you thanks that you sent Jesus to, to show us what it looks like to hear and heed the voice of God. And in Christ being our example in that, Christ also became our salvation as he heeded the voice of God in going to the cross for us and our salvation. And I do thank you that that sacrifice brings us to right relationship with God so that we might hear your voice more clearly. Through Christ, we have been adopted as sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters, we can trust that the Father is speaking to us. So help us to be a people who shema your voice. Help us to be a people whose number one goal is to hear you speak, to hear you, to heed you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.